from the Center for European Reform. You're listening to an audio recording from a recent CR event. If for some reason you couldn't be there, you can catch up now. Enjoy. Well, um, hello everybody and welcome back from your lunch break. Um, I hope everybody's not feeling too, too sleepy because... Uh, Uh, this this session is going to be uh, is, is certainly going to wake you up a little bit. I think um, I I want to uh, start by um, doing something which is completely uh, analogous and not only relevant in a sort of sideways kind of way, um, which is to talk about a quite interesting paper which some economists at MIT put together. Um, and I'm sure you've all heard of Moore's law. Um, which is the principle that computing power embedded in microchips uh, grows exponentially over time. Um, and, you know, this was the, the theory that Moore put together, and uh, the data that we've seen since is absolutely right. You know, so you just see a lovely curve that goes up like this. And just, that's why um, your iPhone has more computing power than the lunar module. Um, the paper that the MIT economists put together uh, said... Okay, well, let's just look at how, what sort of inputs and how, ma how many inputs we have to put in in order to achieve that exponential rate of growth in computing power. Um, and they found that the amount of man hours, woman hours, researcher hours necessary to achieve that rate was also growing exponentially. Um, that, uh, and and it, makes, it makes intuitive sense that innovation, once you've got the low-hanging fruits becomes harder and harder and harder, and then you need more and more and more labor inputs, essentially, to make it work. Um, so I just start off with that, because we had a lot of discussions about um, uh, the fact that the energy sector is kind of the low-hanging fruit, and then we have to move into some much more difficult sectors, like transport, like energy efficiency, um, like agriculture. Um, And I just thought it was an interesting start to our discussion today, which is going to be on industry and innovation. Um, there seem to me to be four ways, really, that governments can try and incentivize innovation. One is to regulate using standards. So basically say, look, these are our aims. You, market players, have to meet these standards, and it's up to you to try and reduce costs um, and to come up with the innovations necessary to make that happen. So you could think of that as being building codes. You can tax, so you just raise the price of pollution. We had a bit of discussion about um, a climate tax earlier. Um, London's new ultra-low emission zone is essentially a tax to try and prevent heavily polluting vehicles from coming into the city centre, which will be great from my point of view. Um, you can ban things, um, so just ultimately make certain practices illegal. Um, deforestation legislation is a, is a good example of that. Um, and then finally, you can subsidize or provide um, cheap money uh, to the most kinds of innovative practices or try and sort of steward the innovation system in that way. Um, obviously, these have some, some pretty big questions, both in terms of the financial sector and in terms of um, the industrial sector itself. Um, and um, we have two uh, excellent speakers today. Um, unfortunately, our third speaker, Martha McPherson, let us know this morning that she's ill um, and won't be able to make it, um, despite our best efforts to recruit uh, one of you guys to come and join our panel. We haven't managed to make that happen. So um, we may finish um, slightly early, just so that our panelists don't get too hoarse. 
Um, uh, but to introduce them, we have, um, to my left, we have Catherine Howarth, who's the Chief Executive of Share Action. Share Action is a charity which is pressing for responsible investment practices, um, and that, obviously, decarbonisation is a reasonably large part of that. Um, and then we have Corinna Zirold, um, who's a Senior Policy Advisor for the Industrial European Trade Union. Um, a lot of your affiliates are in the mining, energy and manufacturing sector. Um, and so we should have some really interesting thoughts about the social and employment aspects of this debate, um, the finance aspects of this debate, as well as a broader discussion about innovation more generally. Um, we'll go in alphabetical order. Um, I, I, I said that I was going to be reasonably strict on time and say about eight minutes, but as it's just you two, I'll relax that. Uh, and we'll go, so, so Catherine, if you'd like to kick That's us off. enormously dangerous. Um, <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. It's excellent to, to be here. Um, the Centre for European Reform and the Friedrich Ebert Stifting are two organisations I've been interested to build a, more of a connection with, so thank you uh, for the invitation. So I... I thought that I would spend a bit of or my eight minutes, or maybe it'll be ten, who knows, um, uh, talking about European leadership on financial services policy that enables the achievement of the Paris climate goals. Um, and it's worth saying that the financial policy making that's going on um, at a European level, which is really quite bold and ambitious, and I'll say a little bit about it, um, uh, in a moment, uh, is also um, focusing on the, the, the so-called 2030 agenda and the sustainable development goals um, as, as much as the climate um, agreement. Um, but it, it's sort of flourished um, in the last three years in quite an interesting way. And the context really for that is actually, I would say, Brexit. Sorry that we have to bring this up. But the morning after the Brexit referendum... Lord Hill, who was the UK's commissioner for financial services, resigned. And um, Lord Hill had, I, I don't know the man, but a reasonably, he was a member of the Conservative Party, and a reasonably conservative figure when it came to financial services policy and maintaining the status quo. And particularly, I think the UK did feel that he was doing quite a good job of making sure that the City of London sort of remained um, a very important centre for European financial services and sort of helping to defend. And the UK had done rather well, I think, to, um, the, you know, there's always that sort of horse trading that goes on to see which commissioner and which country will get responsibility for which briefs. And they very, everyone was a bit interested that the UK had scored getting responsibility for financial services. Anyway, Lord Hill was gone the day after Brexit. And almost as um, day follows night, or night follows day, um, a really interesting flourishing of uh, policymaking and kind of ambition on sustainable finance emerged. So very quickly, the, U the Commission established something called the High Level Expert Group on Sustainable Finance and pulled together a group of people from across um, Europe. But actually, the UK did have quite a lot of members of the high-level expert group, and the UK continues to have a huge amount of expertise on sustainable finance and finance in general. Um, and the, the high-level expert group spent a, a while but with quite a, a, a bold brief, which is to really consider how can we make financial services a servant of Europe's ambitions on climate change and, and sustainable development. And, of course, we, we still want, the line has always been and should be, that we still want 
financial services to enable European companies to be competitive and you know, globally successful. But there was this sort of new injection of social and environmental objectives and ambition into the heart of financial services policymaking, which really was a bit of a departure from, from before. And just to put that in context, the, the big sort of flagship thing in financial services previously was something called, which still exists, the Capital Market Union Plan. And there was a teeny tiny footnote on green bonds in there. It was really kind of quite peripheral to the plan. And now we have, sort of three years on, a series of quite ambitious bits of legislation that have just passed in the last few weeks. Um, we have a t major piece of uh, legislation called the taxonomy, which is looking at sort of... Uh, defining how each part of particularly the kind of green end of the economy uh, can be kind of defined in a more uh, specific way so that you avoid what greenwash in financial products um, and you really help to define what is green and what isn't green in terms of economic activities that deserve financing and so on. So there's the taxonomy, that's a big one, quite technical, and then there's another piece called the disclosure regulation which requires... Um, pension funds, insurance companies, asset management organisations and, and certain parts of banks all to provide n quite detailed disclosures about the sustainability risks and impacts of the things that are in their portfolios, both their lending portfolios and their, and their investment portfolios. Um, and then there's, there's an, this, is, this part's not yet finished, but there's um, substantial work in the pipeline to rethink and redefine investors' duties. So pension funds have duties to their beneficiaries, and historically those have been defined quite um, uh, in a somewhat conservative way as just maximising portfolio returns. And now they're being redefined as, well, actually it's in the best interests of the beneficiaries of pension fund not to live in a world that has been ravaged by climate change. And so you're getting these social and environmental objectives built into the legal duties that pension funds and other institutional investors have to their, to their clients and their ultimate um, beneficiaries, which, by the way, brings us back to working people because it was obviously European working people who are um, the members of these pension funds and the, and the clients um, uh, uh, and customers of banks and so on. So I, I think... I just want to sort of set the scene in terms of what's actually going on. And, but also to come back to why this is all so important and in a way very strategic. And I do think as an example of European um, global leadership on climate-related matters. Because obviously embedded in the, in the Paris Climate Agreement was this line about we have to align finance with the goals of the agreement and an acknowledgement that public finance was never going to be enough to achieve the Paris Climate Goals. And we had to find ways of unlocking... Um, climate um, finance for, for green activities and find ways of withdrawing financial support for high-carbon industries. And so that's never going to happen, really, in the status quo financial services regulated environment. It needs an underpinning, if we're ever going to achieve that, of new objectives and rules and regulations for um, investors, particularly large investors who have long-term horizons and are investing for the long term. And just to give you a little perspective on the status quo versus, versus where we might end up, one of the countries in Europe, obviously not a European Union member, but um, that has some big pension funds like other member states, is Switzerland. And the Swiss Environmental Ministry said, well, let's... Um, 
I don't know whether the pension fund ministry had approved this, but they said, let's have a look at what Swiss pension funds are investing in and how well aligned or not that is with the Paris Climate Agreement and, and so on. And what they found, and by the way, this would be absolutely true of, U, of UK pension funds and pension funds in many other countries, is that Swiss pension funds are invested for a five-degree world. You know, pension funds are just full of very high-carbon old industries that um, have paid wonderful dividends. I mean, the, the biggest dividend payers in most UK pension funds are Shell and BP, companies that have done a wonderful job over the years of paying out dividends and enabling um, uh, people to retire in a degree of comfort, but which, of course, are sort of rather on the wrong side of the transition. And pension funds historically have had rather little invested in these kind of nascent, relatively high-risky industries that we need to support um, if we're going to achieve the transition. So this kind of EU-level policymaking on sustainable finance, I think, is both really strategic, quite bold, um, and, uh, and actually very well designed to prevent European citizens from the double exposure of both having your your pension invested in industries that actually are, are increasingly high risk from a financial point of view. But also, if we don't move along um, and, and reposition those portfolios, then, of course, we're just financing um, a, a, a more rapid deterioration in the climate reality. So, um, so it's that sort of protection um, of individuals that underpins all of, all of this uh, policymaking. So just to sort of a quick note on, on the UK's positioning on this. So um, the UK is in a way, we're obviously still a European Union member and not very influential in all the negotiations um, because having to take a bit of a back seat in some of the kind of legislative work that's going on, although it does still have votes. Um, but the UK has been kind of watching what's going on in this arena with a lot of interest because the UK still seeks to protect the kind of competitive advantage of its financial services industry quite significantly. And actually underpinning all of this is not just the need for climate, but also kind of public support for finance transitioning. And after all, you know, we're, we're, only, we're 10 years on from the financial crisis, but there's huge legitimacy questions about the financial services industry. And this whole agenda on sustainable finance and really seeing finance as a vehicle for helping to meet the Paris climate goals is actually a very important vehicle for finance rehabilitating itself um, in, uh, the, in, in terms of sort of public support and mandate. So, um, there's a lot of interest in this agenda within the UK. And in fact, the UK, you'll hear, you know, that the City of London holds green finance conferences and all the rest of it, and we say we want to be globally leading. But actually, what, what's going on? Is this really competitive force coming from continental Europe? And the French thinking, ooh, this is a really good chance to sort of lead on sustainable finance and ultimately um, potentially win quite a lot of business away from the UK in terms of financial services. So there's it's not all about being nice. It's also about um, meeting consumer interests, public support, and some of this kind of industry interest in, in staying competitive um, and, and, and governments trying to foster and enable their financial services sectors to be as competitive as they can be. I just want to highlight very quickly um, the role of civil society in all this. Um, there's a share action. My organization is very involved with a group of others in Brussels 
in shepherding and pushing and nudging and sort of lobbying along um, this, these various bits of legislation. And I think there's, there's actually a very sophisticated dialogue taking place between the investment industry, the more progressive end of it that's really embracing this and sees great, great opportunity out of it, civil society organisations, policymakers, legislators. Um, and as an example of that, um, obviously we're coming up to the European elections, but there's a group of MEPs supported both by the investment industry and by civil society groups, including my own, that are working out how can we, post the European elections, maintain a really strong momentum in terms of this reform agenda in finance. Um, so I think that's, that's very promising. And I think when you look back at what this commission has achieved, people like uh, President Juncker uh, and others are saying, well, actually, some of that work we've done to put through major bits of new legislation on sustainable finance are some of the most um, important work that's been achieved in, in, in this commission. So that's, that's quite um, impressive, really. And, and, and I, I, we're only at the beginning of the journey. As I, as I, you know, that reference to the Swiss pension funds, is, I'm afraid, is sort of where we're at. But I do think Europe is, is demonstrating really quite smart leadership. And in doing so, does hopefully create... Europe being a laboratory for the smart, sustainable business models of the future. And that we can't achieve that without finance. So it does link. I haven't spent much time talking about industrial innovation, I'm afraid. But I'll stop now. Um, but just to say that I think this finance piece is a really critical underpinning element for all of that. Thank you very much, Catherine. Um, at, the end, at the end of your remarks, we, we sort of strayed into the questions um, about... Uh, industri industrial restructuring if we're thinking about fi the finance sector essentially as a, an industry which is going to have to make big changes in terms of the way that it invests um, and obviously when we're talking about manufacturing and heavy industry this is um, you're at the real front end um, so Karina it'd be great to hear your views about uh, innovation and what it means socially Thank you, first of all, for the invitation and uh, for organizing this uh, very interesting conference. And I think the discussions were very, um, very important this morning. So, and I was actually glad um, to hear um, from so many um, of the speakers the word uh, just transition and um, integrating the social concerns in, in the um, in the presentations. Um, as you uh, said, um, I'm representing Industrial um, Europe. We are um, a European federation of trade unions representing trade unions in uh, manufacturing sectors, including energy intensive industries, energy uh, producing sectors, but also um, mining, coal and lignite mining um, across Europe and also um, outside of the EU, um, Turkey, uh, Western Balkans. Um, and so on. So um, for us, um, the social dimension and um, the, the term of just transition is, is the key um, in this debate. I'm afraid I won't be the expert talking uh, too much about um, uh, the innovation side and technologies. I can, I can mention a few. And I regret that um, the colleague from the Climate Foundation had, has already le left us because they have been doing some interesting work on that. Uh, and as uh, Philip said this morning, they are going to launch um, a report, um, a study uh, tomorrow, which is also following up on some previous work. So, um, but nevertheless, um, so as I said, um, we look very much into the social dimension um, to see what it, uh, what um, uh, 
the transformation of um, heavy industries especially um, mean uh, for working men and women in the industry. And um, moreover, we also look into the regional um, perspective. And there um, I have to point also at um, what the Commission um, published last year, um, the long-term strategy um, uh, for climate uh, action. They, um, they put in their um, deep, um, in-depth analysis um, large part on the just transition and social issues and they also published a map uh, where you can see the share of employment in heavy industries across Europe and you also have a map uh, with a share of employment in fossil fuel um, extraction sectors and um, you can see, see clearly that there is real um, regional dimension and the share um, of employment is high in uh, spe specifically some countries with um, generally a lower GDP uh, per capita and a lower uh, capacity to actually um, master the transformation. Um, very much, um, uh, this concentration is very much in Central Eastern uh, countries. So that is why we have to look into this regional dimension and when we talk about um, just transition, we have to um, promote the principle of not, no, not leaving any region, not leaving any worker behind. And this should be um, the guiding principle in this discussion. Uh, from a trade union perspective, uh, especially from a trade union perspective representing the uh, heavy industries as well, um, we like to emphasize um, that um, industry heavy industry and the workers then can be a part of the solution and this is also I think emphasized in the um, analysis supporting the long-term strategy because um, those sectors they can be transformed and there's technological uh, solutions available. Um, first of all let me begin with um, industry represents some figures. Huh? Industry represents 21% of um, greenhouse gas emissions in the EU today, and uh, 60 to 80% originate, uh, originate from the energy intensive sectors, which means if you um, decarbonize um, uh, industry, this means, uh, or energy intensive industries, means almost decarbonizing the entire industry. So, as I said, um, there's uh, technological um, solutions, actually um, not only on the technological side, but also on, um, on the more um, business model side. For instance, um, industrial symbiosis, where you um, build clusters of different sectors that cooperate and that uh, benefit um, uh, from each other, from side uh, products and waste products, it will be an important, um, will play an important role, and is probably one of the lowest hanging fruits um, uh, to reap here. But um, coming back to the um, technological um, solutions. Um, the problem is that they are quite costly. Um, lots of investments will be needed to, to realize them and to actually upskill uh, them also to, to, to the market um, use. And that's why um, when you talk about um, sustainable financing, there was a, and the discussion about um, actually defining 
um, sectors uh, with a negative impact, well, um, being well aware that many of the heavy industries now still have a negative impact on, um, on climate, but um, they have to also have access to finance to actually innovate and, and um, to research and development in order to actually be a part, um, as also those um, sectors provide essential materials for the clean energy transition. Um, you need uh, steel for windmills, you need cement, you need uh, chemicals for photovoltaic and, and so on. So you, you need those uh, sectors and um, that's why for us it's, it's important to say they are also part of the solution, but of course they need to transform. But of course, um, also those sectors compete on a global market. So here, here's a problem. What do we do if others don't, don't follow suit? So um, what we think is necessary on an EU level to be done is, um, first of all, create uh, synergies between uh, climate uh, policies and environmental policies. Uh, so you need, um, if you have a plan for a long-term strategy um, for climate action. You need to have a, a long-term strategy also for industrial policy. This is essential to actually achieve um, a cleaner industry producing in, in Europe and um, actually achieving the targets. Um, and then it would be helpful to and translate long-term uh, goals into short-term uh, targets um, that can be achievable, uh, achievable um, with realistic objectives for sectors and value chains that are strategically important. Moreover, um, we have to protect industry uh, continuously against investment leakage. European industrial chains, as I said, they, um, they depend very much on, on, high, uh, on investments and um, they are challenged by developing viable low-carbon technologies and that's why um, they are quite vulnerable in, in the global competition. So you need, um, you need to protect um, them. Then we need a predictable operational environment um, that ensures planning security for the, for the industry in order to, to um, avoid a relocation of added value and jobs into other regions, we need a permanent monitoring of, of the deep decarbonization of energy intensive industries um, and, and also um, the effect on, the of their, on their competitiveness. We have to avoid that domestic production is replaced by imports um, um, from, from abroad. Um, because this risks to have actually a more negative um, impact on the global emissions. We also, and this was I think mentioned um, this morning, we have to have some clarity on how to share costs of the transformation um, across the society, but also um, industrial value chains. We have to strike a balance between um, between um, uh, the need for viable business models, but also then um, affordable electricity prices um, and acceptable uh, prices for, for the products, um, for um, the end products, and also um, the level of subsidies and taxes. It's, this will be an important challenge. 
As I said, there's a, um, a strong regional um, dimension in the discussion, and when we look into traditional um, industrial regions, um, they are clearly challenged by innovating and, and, and transforming themselves, but we also have to look into the opportunities. So. Um, in that uh, sense, it's very important that we create um, redevelopment plans for those regions and uh, that we also look into um, developing readjustment plans for companies um, and especially in um, small and medium enterprises that, um, that are very much concentrated on traditional technologies. Um, so there needs uh, to be um, programs for that. Lastly, um, international cooperation and the support of the uptake of low-carbon uh, technologies will be key. Um, if we reinvent our production processes uh, to become zero-carbon, um, this is only um, possible in our view if um, we maintain the produ uh, their production footprint inside the EU and to, that we avoid relocation to um, other regions with less um, stringent um, rules. Now, I will come a bit, even a bit more, um, focus a bit more on the social dimension. Um, and I said already, I was glad to hear um, the just transition uh, mentioned um, in, in this morning a couple of times. This uh, debate about just transition is quite young, and we haven't um, we haven't integrated that in our concerns. Um, um, and this is, has been only in the discussion for and re very recently. Basically, it's the term of just transition or the imperative for just transition managed to be part of the um, preamble of the um, Paris Agreement. And um, just recently, in December um, last year, um, 55 uh, governments signed the um, Solidarity and Just Transition Silesia Declaration that actually um, stresses um, that just transition of the workforce and the creation of decent work and quality jobs are crucial to ensure an inclusive and just transition. So there have been a, um, uh, some very important developments, at least uh, from, from our perspective, but what we have to avoid is that um, this is not only lip uh, service being paid, but that there's actually real actions and means um, being transferred to the um, translation of, of this principle. So in our view, um, on the social side, um, in order to tackle um, challenges of the transformation of industries, we have to look into avoiding um, mass redundancies and ensure a smooth transition um, to another job for each worker that will be affected um, by, um, by the transition. We have to promote internal mobility of workers um, inside the company, um, establish safety nets of social protection. We have to foresee, and this is important, we have to foresee enough time and resources to allow the regions and workers to adapt. Okay. And uh, we have to invest in human capital. Um, the skills uh, dimension is quite important. We need to um, look into re- and upskilling of current workforce um, to actually make them compatible with what, with what we need uh, in the future and in, in cleaner energy production or in cleaner production uh, uh, technologies. We have to look into the distributional impact of uh, um, climate measures. I mentioned it uh, briefly, 
but uh, we have to avoid that um, the, pe uh, the um, people with the lowest income have to um, be at the cost. Uh, so um, we have to look into uh, what it means um, in, in, um, in terms of increased cost of living, electricity, heating, and transport. So, and uh, one very important thing is um, the European um, member states have signed two years ago um, the European Pillar of Social Rights, um, and the Commission used um, this, this as an argument or as a as a um, as a vehicle to achieve a just transition. But we think um, this pillar is um, still it consists of a number of principles, but not. Um, there, there's not a lot of uh, legislative initiatives behind, but if you want to gear towards a just transition, there needs to be a bit stronger commitment of, of, uh, um, of member states to actually um, translate it uh, into progressive policies. And last but not least, we, we've been also um, uh, demanding for the setting up of a just energy transition fund, um, as it was proposed by the European Parliament um, last year, um, that actually supports vulnerable regions in the transition. Um, we've been uh, um, before that also lobbying for um, a just transition fund in, as part of the ETS, um, uh, similar to the Modernization Fund and the Innovation Fund. Um, but this part uh, has been um, actually uh, merged with the Modernization Fund, and um, this is up to the member states, to the um, 10 uh, member states with the lowest GDP um, uh, that can use it, and that can use it also for, for projects um, of, um, to, to, to um, implement a just transition, but this is up to the member states, as I said. So this is important. Maybe lastly, uh, one, uh, and I know I've been uh, talking for a long time, one thing which is uh, really dear to us is um, the importance of social dialogue. Um, and uh, if you want to, um, if you want to have um, increase the social acceptance, you have to also involve uh, trade unions in the discussion. I know in, in some countries it works uh, better. We, we heard the example of um, the Just Transition Agreement in Spain um, that was signed by uh, two of our member, members also in Spain. Um, and we had um, the discussions in Germany on phasing out uh, coal and, and um, uh, structural uh, change. Um, where, our, um, where actually three trade union leaders were, were involved. And we like to highlight this aspect of integrating trade unions in the debate. Unfortunately, that doesn't work um, in all the countries. And unfortunately, it's very worrisome if we look into Central Eastern uh, Europe, um, where um, social um, the social dimension and social dialogue is very weak and has been even further weakened. Um, so um, this is a crucial aspect to actually allow for a just transition. So thank you. I'll leave it to up. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Karina. I, w I was just going just to say one last thing, which is uh, somebody who doesn't know that much about climate innovation, but thinking about Silicon Valley, what have you got? You've got huge, massive potential returns. I mean, if you think about Facebook or Google, you know, they dominate the advertising market now um, simply because they've created platforms which are just impossible to ignore if you're a producer of content of any, or if you're selling something or anything. Um, and in terms of healthcare, you know, Silicon Valley is so successful in healthcare, partly because the American health system is so grotesquely expensive. Um, and so there's huge returns there which can be gobbled up by new, exciting, innovative technologies. Um, and so 
to Corinna's point, my, I suppose I, I go away thinking there's a question here, which is that actually if you want to create these returns where finance is going to flood in and be innovative, then actually you're going to have to make things more expensive. You know, you're going to have, you're going to, have to say, uh, you know, here are, here are consumers, you're going to have to pay some money in order to be able to provide the innovation to do that, or you're going to have to say taxpayer, you're going to have to pay some of this money, um, which obviously opens up all sorts of political economy questions. Anyway, thank you very much to Karina and Catherine. That was a, a great discussion, I think. Um, round of applause to them. And, um, and Sophia's just going to say, say a few words to wrap up the conference. I just wanted to thank everybody for coming. Thank the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung again for doing this with us. I think it was a really fruitful cooperation. I'm very happy with this conference. I think we had a good mix of political discussions and very wonky discussions, which is what we do. So uh, that's our brand. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, I was really struck by, I think you were the one who said it, the sense that, yes, there is an upward curve everywhere. We can be optimistic if we want in all of these areas because everybody is doing something. We're just not doing it quickly enough. And I think we've had, I've had a lot of people come to me and say this is a very timely conference and obviously exactly this week and um, I would like to claim credit for that but we started planning this nine months ago. But I do think that it's going to remain timely. <laughs> this is, we could have a conference like this for the next 20 years every week and it would be timely. So I hope that we'll continue the conversation. I hope you all be a part of that. Thank you very much.